Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Thank you very much and welcome to tonight's Department of Health Policy annual lecture uh, from the LSE. Um, And it's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Harlan Krumpsholtz, who is going to talk on population health in the 21st century, uh, a path to progress. Um, Harlan is a a multi-talented individual, a cardiologist by background training, um, but also like many cardiologists, he's uh, ventured forth into the world of epidemiology and uh, evidence-based medicine. He's director of the Yale Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation. So he's really at the interface between clinical practice, population health, regulatory science, epidemiology, and he founds all his uh, arguments upon evidence and empirical evidence in particular. So it is really my great pleasure to welcome you, Harlan, to this event tonight. Uh, He's told me he will speak for about 45 minutes to allow a number of uh, questions at the end. If you put your questions in the chat, I'll pick them up and forward them to Harlan at the end. So without further ado, Harlan, the floor's yours. Thank you very much once again. It's a pleasure to be with you all. I wish I could be in person. And uh, it's a distinct honor. Let me just say that what I'll be talking about today, I have no relevant disclosures. Um, And let me just thank the organizers. It, It is such an honor to be able to speak at the London School of Economics, uh, an institution of such a worldwide reputation. I I first encountered LSE when I graduated college and embarked on a year-long project before medical school to do a comparative study of how health systems provided care to rural populations. When I came to London, I had the opportunity to be taught and mentored by Brian Abel Smith. And he helped me as I traveled to the British countryside, uh, actually an education, I'll never forget it as well as the kindness of the general practitioners and to give me a deep understanding of the NHS and the ethos that that exists within the UK system. What what continues to inspire about Brian Abel Smith uh, was not only his his manner and insight, but his use of scholarship to compel action for the good of people. Uh, I I just took this quote from the book by uh, Sally Sherrod. Brian Abel Smith was determined to use his skills to push for society to place great moral value on equality, leveling abhorrent extremes of income and opportunity in which everyone participated uh, to the full extent of their abilities. And, and I think that's in some ways the spirit of the talk that I, I give today and, and in, in some ways, many ways, I guess, in honor of, of the kind of things that Brian Abel Smith was able to do throughout his career. I also want to extend my uh, thanks to my friend Elias uh, Masalas. Uh, for his kindness over the years and, and appreciate his invitation to do this. I, I took this uh, talk as an opportunity to muse on our current situation in healthcare. And uh, of course, with a focus on the United States. And I appreciate that, that you would indulge me with this opportunity to speak to all of you. Um, as a general note, we're in the midst of the most remarkable life sciences revolution. And, and there'll surely be continued breakthroughs that transform our ability to prevent, diagnose, and treat disease. We're similarly in a data science and computational revolution that will enable us to see and act uh, in ways that have 
previously been beyond our reach. I start this way because I, I think as we think about the moment now, it's impossible not to pay attention to these larger trends that are going on around us. Old diagnostic labels will, will fall away as we gain more precise designations. Uh, average recommendations that we've used for years will yield away to more precise approaches for, for patients and, and populations. General information about risks and benefits of strategies will yield to much more precise estimates informed by broader and more complex data and by analytics that, that allow this kind of uh, accommodation for interactions and complexities. Workflows have already changed as telemonitoring, telemedicine, and telecommunication have, have already reduced the need for face-to-face -face encounters and have the potential to improve the quality and experience of so many services. Uh, these, these important changes are heralding new capabilities for medicine healthcare. But, but the key step will, will remain the issue of implementation. And, and if we're not fulfilling the promise of our current capabilities, and if we're rife with in, inefficiencies in our current system, then we can't expect new capabilities to produce magic and suddenly all, all make it better. It would behoove us to push on innovation in healthcare delivery and strategies to promote health, just as we're pushing on innovation in life and data science. My, my central thesis is that the US healthcare system, in fact, like many others, but I'll focus on the US, is failing the public. It is a business designed to provide services. It's largely paid regardless of the effectiveness, efficiency, equity, patient-centeredness, timeliness, or safety of those services. The focus is merely on the provision of the services, not optimizing the investment in healthcare dollars for the health benefit of the population. We call for equity or quality or safety. We do this all the time, but we don't set grand goals or create grand strategies to meet them. We silo our focus on beating down particular disease or providing particular services and put less energy and resources into preventing them, let alone promoting well-being or compressing morbidity, and let alone eliminating those abhorrent disparities that even Abel Smith talked about. It may be time to set these grand goals, embrace strategies to reach them, test, iterate, and implement tactics to pursue the goals, and then hold ourselves accountable for achieving them. Having overarching goals for the investments that we're making in healthcare. So let, let me uh, begin with this. Of course, I, I neglected to show this picture of Abel Smith as I talked about him, but as I said, I, I actually give this talk in honor of him. And and, uh, and the work that he did. Well, look, to level set, uh, the United States has a blended system of public and private financing. A and as many have noted, it's complicated. Well, maybe we don't hold the uh, unique uh, uh, title of a complicated healthcare system, but I, I think ours is, is particularly complicated in the way that we do things. Now, the United States, prides itself on its exceptionalism. This is the idea that um, 
the United States is inherently different from other nations. You, you know this hubris from us. We, we, we express it too often. It's quite annoying and that arrogance can be quite off-putting. Uh, but the proponents of this exceptionalism promote the idea that the U.S. approach and history positions it for leadership. Sometimes this rhetoric is just bluster, but I will say there's one area where the U.S. is surely exceptional, and that's in our healthcare spending. I don't think anyone would dispute that. We are avid spenders in healthcare with an appetite that seems actually insatiable. So let, let's review the inputs into our healthcare system, the, the actual spending that's going on. And I'm going to focus on the period up until just before the pandemic, because so much has changed in the pandemic. The pandemic deserves its own examination. But, but I think with looking at long-term trends, there is utility in focusing on this, this period, this, this couple decade period just before the pandemic. So let, let's say we look from around the turn of the millennium to just before the pandemic. And um, so in 1999, uh, National health expenditures in the U.S. reached $1.2 trillion, uh, about uh, 5.6% uh, uh, up from 98. We were increasing every year, about 13% of GDP. If you put that in 2019 dollars, let's do that so we hold everything level. It's about $1.8 trillion. But, but healthcare costs are going up faster than inflation. And if you look at 2019, how much did we spend on health? Well, that was 3.8 trillion, uh, now from 13% of GDP about 20, 21 years earlier to 17% of GDP, or about $11,582 per person. In real inflation-adjusted terms, we spent $2 trillion more in 2019 than we did in 1999. Now, um, the, there's some other features to this. In 2019, our Medicare spending, so that's the spending we do on elderly, our universal insurance for people 65 and older was about 800 billion. Medicaid, our insurance for people with low incomes was a bit uh, 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 less than that at 600 billion. But, but I wanna put it in perspective our total government expenditure. So that's $1.7 trillion in 2019. Now that's just 45% of our total spend, but, but the government itself is spending $5,000 per person, actually, if you spread it out among everyone. And, and I say that because we talk about the U.S. not having universal system because we say we can't afford it. But, but the truth is that we spend quite a lot of money on government, from the government, from our tax dollars, from our society investment, straight off. And uh, let's put that a little bit in perspective with uh, a UK comparison. So I'm speaking to largely a UK audience. You all know this very well, that the total UK expenditure in 2019 was something like 225 billion pounds or about 10% of your GDP, or about 3,300 um, pounds per person. Uh, the government spending of that was 177 billion, about uh, almost 80% of the total healthcare expenditure. Uh, just again, uh, 
for comparison, the UK spent about 130 billion uh, in in 2019 pounds in 1999. I know that's a funny way to say it, but you went from from about 170, uh, you went from 130 uh, to 225. So if I take the average exchange rate in 1999 of $1.27 uh, and we 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 escalate up, we see that actually the UK is spending less per person on the, your federal expenditure than, than the US is, and you're doing it with universal insurance. So we're actually outstripping even the total amount of money you're spending on the NHS on a patchwork system that doesn't provide universal insurance. Um, so let, let's think about this return on investment. So I just was getting into the spend. I mean, it is a kind of crazy amount of money. Uh, and it, I think it's fair to ask what the ROI is. And, and I thought about this way for the ROI. I mean, there's this one way of saying, well, look at the spend and what are you getting back? But let's look at the, 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 the sort of uh, difference in differences. Let's look at, let's just take 99 and the actual incremental additional amount of money that was spent every year and cumulatively since 99 on healthcare in America. So we're spending a certain amount in 99. If that amount of money had remained flat over 20 years, I'm going to say the marginal extra amount was zero. I'm going to say that's zero. If we, if we had flat spending, just pacing with inflation, I'm going to say that, that we, were, we didn't add anything more. We were pretty much the same system, but that's not true. We outpaced inflation every year. So um, my question is at the margin, how much more did we invest in healthcare than, than we had in 1999? So you take that extra amount spent each year, you level it all out into 2019 dollars. And what you see is that, any thoughts? It's more than $20 trillion marginal investment since since 1999. So in, in this case, I'm not just saying we're spending X and what are we getting back and people are talking about, it. I'm saying, let's think about about mar at the margin. So that's how much more we put in. Whatever we're spending in 99, we said, keep pace with inflation and we're gonna throw another 20 trillion to $2019 into this system to try to get, I suppose, to try to get uh, something back. So. So the question is, what did we get back from that? What was the return on that extra 20 trillion? I'm not even talking about what we were spending in 99 and how much of that was at the margin extra. I'm just saying, I'll just take that as, okay, as a level and saying, now what have we done in the 20 years, 20 trillion? Well, look, life expectancy went up uh, modestly in, in those, if you look at the end of this figure, it went up a little bit, but then it started flattening out in the US even before even before the pandemic, lots of people associating this with opioids or other causes, but we were flattening our life expectancy gains from like 2015 to 2019. And, and some groups in the United States were already losing life expectancy. But look at this. This is a long arc. It's hard to say that there was a discontinuity here with the additional $20 trillion producing something that much extra. And and you weren't getting that kind of extra investment in many of these earlier periods. Of course, society was changing. There's, there's lots of public health things that are accounting for this. But I'm just saying life expectancy, at least they don't have 
strong evidence that it, it really uh, bounced up with, with some discontinuity. Now, our group conducted a recent examination of progress in this about 20 year period uh, with an examination of the national, and this, this federally sponsored, federally uh, overseen uh, consecutive cross-sectional surveys of health in the United States called the National Health Interview Study. And it included in this period uh, about 600,000 people. Uh, and I just want to note, led by people in our group, uh, Shivani uh, Mahajan and uh, Cesar Carballo. And uh, we wanted to just essentially say during this period when there was all this extra investment and, and, and we were prioritizing so many different programs, what did we really accomplish in the United States during this period of time? Well, between uh, 1999 and 2018, there were no improvements in the estimated prevalence of poor health, severe or severe psychological distress, and there was an increase in functional limitations in our society. So, so net-net, yeah, uh, life expectancy increases a little bit during this period, but it's in continuity with a long-term gain. In the last five years of the period, there's, there's no increase in life expectancy, essentially. You look at the experience of our population, there's no improvement in health status. There's no improvement in psychological, dis people experiencing psychological distress. And there's actually a worsening of functional status. Functional limitations actually increase in this period. So this figure shows uh, this, this result. So this is just plotting year on year out. Again, representative samples intended for the purpose of being able to provide uh, reflective representative uh, uh, information about the United States health. And the, the top one shows any functional limitation you can see quite high, but it's increasing over time. The poor fair health uh, is flat and the severe psychological distress is flat. Now, I, I just wanna say that there are, were things going on in our country that, that we thought were providing benefits. We were undergoing healthcare reform. And yeah, it's true in the US, the number of uninsured went down after Obamacare was implemented in 2010. There were additional uh, features that are implemented subsequently, but uh, this is looking at uninsured, no usual source of care for gone, for, for gone or delayed care, or not seen and talked to a health professional. Some of these, especially, like I said, for gone, for gone or delayed care goes down. But, but look at some of it goes up before it goes down. And if you look at the beginning in 99, we're actually just about the same place for most of them. And the uninsured goes down more. But again, going back up here, net, net, I'm an outcomes researcher. I'm saying at the end of the day, what have we accomplished? And it, we're, we're hard pressed to say that we've actually improved the health of the population. And I'm not discounting the importance of greater insurance and greater access, but it's not the end game of what we're trying to accomplish. But uh, this can look at, um, again, these together. And you can see, yeah, the policy was achieving a little bit greater access. Although, like I said, there was because there was some increase, you take a look at that foregone care, that orange line, it ends up pretty much close to where it started in 99. And, uh, and like I said, at the top, we're not accomplishing much. Now, what about disparities? Well, uh, interestingly, uh, or unfortunately, 
uh, you can see that there are problems uh, with these disparities. These aren't experienced similarly among different groups. So if you look at the orange line, the Latino Hispanic line, and the gray diamonds, uh, those are black Americans, you can see that when you're looking at poor or fair health, they're doing worse. And the gap, the gap between them and uh, others, the white Americans, or there's a smaller group of Asians. And, and in the US, again, to cluster all the Asian populations together is hard. It's a, it's a smaller population. But, and, uh, but, but that group is, in this one is, is very much more reflective of similar to the white population. But the other two are clearly above and the gap is not clearly closing. If you look at functional limitation, we see what we saw before, which was that there was increases. Again, the black Americans are, are at the top. Uh, interesting, just to go back to the colors, that, that blue box are, are white Americans. They're closer around the functional uh, limitations and high. And severe psychological distress, again, uh, not showing improvement, not as much of a disparity uh, there. And then Again, you look at all these groups and for access, their improvements among insurance, particularly among the Latino Hispanic group. But these were, and these are good changes to get more people under coverage. And, but many of these things, like I said, if you look at 99 and you look at where you ended up for usual sort, without a usual source of care, uh, not seen or talked with a health professional within 12 months, for going or delaying care, not, we're not making tons of progress. And some of these disparities are, are, are still prominent. We also looked, and, and this is kind of, I'm just surveying, like where do we stand on outputs? Another thing to look at is comorbidities, concomitant conditions, chronic conditions that people live with. If, if one of our goals is a healthier society, then it should also be reflected in fewer people with these chronic conditions. We should be able to, to preempt them, to, to prevent them let alone our goals to control them. And, and what we see here in this preprint, which is now under submission, we're again looking at the same database, trying to piece through what's going on with multimorbidity in the country. What we see, and now we'll change the colors here a little bit from the other one, this separate paper, you, you see that uh, two things. One is all of these lines are trending upward. So again, the $20 trillion we're spending in healthcare isn't clearly reducing the amount of multimorbidity. This is more than, you know, more than a couple of comorbidities, chronic conditions at the same time. And, and the gap between the uh, racial and ethnic groups is not really closing. And you've got black Americans at the very top of this, uh, of this set of curves. Um, and, and it's, it's a disturbing uh, set of trends. Now, this is something I, I, that I found quite interesting, which was that we, we divided it by age and we said, what's the gap between these different racial and ethnic groups with white Americans? And I'm just gonna focus your attention on the, uh, maybe that it's a little bit of a red maroon line, the one at the top, uh, which represents black Americans compared with white Americans. So this, this slide is showing you the Delta. Zero there, that zero line would mean that there's no difference between that group and white Americans. Uh, a line above says there's more comorbidity in that group. Line below says there's less. And I'm just gonna focus attention on black white differences uh, for the moment. And what it's saying is at each age, what's the difference? 
So for example, black and white Americans, chronic disease, of course, at that point, there's not a lot of chronic disease, but, but looking at black, white Americans, chronic disease, there's no difference in the 18 to 24 year olds, for example. And there's a slight bump up at 25 to 29, 30 to 34. Then you start seeing it separate. So you've got a, a separation that begins in early adulthood and then starts to escalate and actually peak around 60 to 64. Then the difference, now, if I just looked at the amount of comorbidity, of course, it's going up with age for everybody. But I'm looking at the delta, the difference between blacks and whites here. And I'm seeing that, that this is really most prominent, most impressive, uh, starting in early adulthood. And then as you get to the very elderly, of course, there's a survivorship issue because mortality in blacks in the U.S. is also higher than whites. So the, the black Americans who survive to 85 are among the healthier of the black Americans because more have died before that. But, you know, you've got people with a lot of comorbidity and the, the, the racial differences start to decline. I don't think that's a triumph of equity in our country. That's a manifestation probably of survivorship. And it's not something to celebrate. But the, the issue is, if we're going to make interventions on these health equity issues, this, this slide is showing me that we need to start earlier, very early in adulthood, or even before when these things are manifesting. Now, we've also got an issue about geographic disparities in the United States that's also worthy of our attention. So we did this, this study where we were just asking, are there areas in the United States that persistently have uh, higher uh, rates of adverse outcomes, risk-standardized mortality. We also looked at, at risk-standardized uh, hospitalization rates as well. But, but let's just say about the mortality, are there areas year in, year out, where the mortality rates, even among older Americans, and in our country, that means those with universal insurance. So they, at that point, are covered. Are there places where it's just more risky than it is anywhere else? And not just one year or another year, but over over a long period, in this case, we looked at 99 to 2014, and the answer was yes. And, and the, the differences were important and, and profound. And, it, and we, so we have these areas in the U.S. also. So it's, it's race, ethnicity. It's also geography. I'm not presenting to you some of the information about income, but I could also show you those, those by income as well. And so we're all this extra money, all this call for improvements in services, breakthroughs, talk about equity, that our report card is not good in any of these. Now, I'll show you one other one, which is there was a, this paper that came out that I liked uh, because it, it just also highlights state differences. States in our country have very different health policies. Uh, and again, when I think about health policies, I think broadly, not just uh, who qualifies, for example, for the universal insurance for people who are poor, what those thresholds are, but also things around gun and traffic safety and a whole range of other issues that affect health. And this shows you uh, from 1958 to 2018, life expectancy differences in, for example, all the states, but they are highlighting uh, Oklahoma in red and in Connecticut, where I live, in blue. And, uh, you know, that th this just speaks to a, a really a profound difference in, in this. People, Glenberg liked to talk about geography as destiny. He was talking a lot about how supply of health services were driving use of health services. But, but it's also true with regard to outcomes. And I thought what was most interesting about this plot to me 
was where Connecticut and Oklahoma looked like, how they looked in 58, up until like around 1968, where, where their life expectancy is just about the same. And then, and then it starts to separate. You know, in the U.S., there's, there's a lot that's more recent that's going on with these disparities. Now, one of my favorite figures uh, showing about this U.S. exceptionalism and putting us now, I, I want to take a moment to put us in perspective with other countries. Uh, again, you know, I'm, you're giving me the honor of speaking uh, to a, a UK group, a sophisticated UK group with an international outlook. And yeah, I know you've all seen this figure uh, before, but it's just one of my favorites because again, <clears throat> it's showing on the bottom health spending in this case per person with purchasing uh, power parity to kind of be able to equalize across and, and life expectancy on the y-axis. And again, you know, what's kind of interesting to me when you look at spending and you look at life expectancy, you say in 1970, uh, US wasn't that much different than the rest of the healthcare systems in what it was spending and in what it was achieving, at least with regard to health uh, life expectancy. Now, actually, I like it. this. Uh, this is the same figure, exact same figure, but just to show you, <laughs> you can make things look more impressive by how you stretch out the the axes, but but I, I like it just because they also put you know the different years on and it, it maybe is a better station and shows you more about the countries. So I, this is just the same figure, but but it is just like remarkable what's happened because it, it is a relatively recent phenomenon. And I'll just say, okay, I'm older, but this is within my lifetime for sure that that U.S. went from a, a performance that was on par. And then the rest of the countries, yeah, they increased their spend, but, but not as rapidly, but the life expectancy uh, dramatically uh, changed. Now, you know, what's the reason for this? Well, this, uh, our world and data, you know, they had some interesting figures I wanted to just share. I'd seen them before, I'm sure you've seen them, but just flip through these rapidly. But yeah, we, we're not doing that well on infant mortality. And it's not to say everyone couldn't do better, but, but this is really uh, not good. If you look at our death rate from road accidents, Again, you look, you go back to 1990, uh, maybe we're still high, but like now we're, we, we haven't really uh, made a difference from obesity, opioid overdoses. We were sort of, this is another U.S. exceptionalism. You know, it wasn't destiny that we were going to experience this. There's something about our system which led to this smoking um, related illness, homicides. This is a tragedy. Look, and the thing, point I was making about all these was that these are not just about treatments. They aren't just about healthcare. And again, you know this, but, but this is a way that we need to start framing our thinking about targets, about what it is that, that really is driving these differences um, with, in life expectancy. Now that's not necessarily what's driving the differences in spend, that those are differences. I just wanted to throw up this one from PNAS that I thought was also quite an interesting one, again, in talking with the European audience, Black, white Americans by age place cost in comparison to Europe, 1990 to 2018. And just to to take some of it, I just took 2018 as an example and put up a couple of these different age groups. And what they're showing are sort of uh, essentially what the, they're capturing the, the mortality differences here over poverty and saying, you know, again, in the U.S., the red is black uh, Americans, the blue is white Americans, and uh, the the 
black line is essentially a conglomeration of European experience, including UK. And looking across poverty and, and showing that, you know, in the US, of course, they're steeper, they're particularly steep among black Americans, but also our mortality rates are just higher uh, than yours. And this is showing it across different age groups. So look, mortality improvements among black Americans in the closing of the racial mortality graph stalled after 2012. That's what this article is saying. Moreover, despite mortality improvements since 1990, white Americans have increasingly lost ground compared to Europeans with substantial gaps in mortality rates opening between Europeans and white Americans. So, so to recap, uh, U.S. is indeed exceptional. Uh, we're exceptionally high cost. We're exceptional in not being able to get the kind of outcomes that we should be getting. And in some ways, we're, we're getting worse. So, look, this is the nadir of the talk where I, I get everyone to say, like, yeah, this is all, all, all not good. But I, I, I want to say, like, what gives me hope? And, and I want to try to to construct maybe at least some of my thinking about the road forward. So, look, I've been involved in a remarkable period of outcomes uh, improvement in cardiovascular disease with amazing progress in prevention and outcome. And, and I posit, posit that these outcomes have been powered by improvements in how we deliver care rather than innovations in what to do. The care of acute myocardial infarction has largely not changed over the past 20 years. The cardiac care unit, the use of aspirin and reperfusion therapy, circulatory support for shock have, have all been in place since the 90s or before. And, and starting in the, about 20 years ago, we began to realize gaps in quality created inefficiencies that led to preventable adverse outcomes. And, and we start to set large scale goals. When I say we, combination of the government, professional societies, hospital associations, started to set large-scale goals about improving the care of cardiovascular disease. And, and I had the, the privilege of participating in this era where we started to develop metrics and hold ourselves accountable for the kind of improvements that would be necessary. And recognizing that it was going to be a better utilization of the knowledge we had and its application in ways that would ensure that each person got the care that they needed. And um, our, a lot of focus is on novel drugs and new devices, and, and that's well-founded. I'm looking forward to that. But, but little attention on how best to ensure that people got the best care. The brilliant Oxford study, ISIS-2, had shown the value, for example, aspirin and reperfusion therapy. But in 1995, among ideal candidates for aspirin, people had no contraindication, no reason not to get it. We're coming in for a heart attack. The, the ISIS study had been published, I think, in, in 85 and shown that but you get a 20% reduction in mortality with aspirin, about a 20% reduction with timely reperfusion therapy, and a third of Americans, ideal candidates, no reason not to get it, were not getting aspirin. And only about 11% were getting timely reperfusion therapy among those who were ideal candidates for it. And that was either because they weren't getting treated or they were getting treated too late for it to be making a, a bit of a difference. And so we, we started a concerted effort, created metrics, developed uh, think tanks, that did research, began to understand the implementation science side of this. And uh, honestly went from, you know, 66% of people on aspirin to, to greater than 90. When you look at the people not getting it, almost all of them have some ex uh, reason that they weren't getting it. We, we went from, uh, 
care that, that wasn't timely, often at my own place, two and a half hours for, before reperfusion therapy, far too late to provide the benefit. To now we're treating people in 30 minutes and 45 minutes. And, and you can go anywhere in America with a heart attack and you can be assured if you've got a, an ST segment elevation MI, the type that would be amenable to rapid reperfusion therapy, you're going to get rapid therapy. And our mortality rates dropped by 30%. Similarly, in the prevention side, where there was, again, a focus on, on meeting goals and metrics, we were able to reduce the, the rate, uh, the, the number of uh, heart attacks in the United States by about 30%. Patient safety also improved with a reduction in preventable adverse events, all contributing to these better outcomes. And when you look at the 30-day improvements, they could also be seen at, at five years and 10 years. So this wasn't just extending people out 30 days only to have them die at two months, but that, that those early saves were seeing long-term durability. Now there's still work to do, and, and, and we're, our group, for example, we're particularly focused on hypertension these days, for which there's backsliding. And this is a, a common condition that causes considerable harm for which there's safe, inexpensive medications. And so we, again, we're, we're talking about how do we focus on the implementation strategies? This? How do we align with patients? How do we, how do we get into a, a, a simple approaches that, that address both the disparities and, and the overall um, missed opportunities that exist out there. So look, when, when all of this has sort of led me to thinking about like, well, what is it we need to do now to be able to really address the, the, the large swath of things that, that ail us, knowing that change is possible, but, but we need to be thinking about this in different ways than we have been. And so I, I'm, I'm thinking that there are three targets of intervention that would be worthy of us right now. One is this healthcare system performance. That's where I have spent a lot of my time. This has been um, uh, where we know that there's so many things that can be done that, that can produce better results, that can show good global returns. And then there's population health performance. This is an area of great neglect. There's no push for accountability uh, in our country. A substantial proportion of Medicare is capitated, but there's little evidence that even in <clears throat> Capitated environments where there is a business incentive to improve outcomes that we're actually making the kind of progress we need to make. And Medicaid's capitated, but, but people come in and out and there's no concerted effort to go beyond the provision of services, but to actually improve and elevate the health. And then, then race income and geographic disparities. This is an area where a lot's said, people like to stand up and say this is national priority. And yet there's little evidence of prog progress. Uh, there's been some diminishment of the mortality differential, but like we've said, it's stalled. And if you look at almost every other area, we're failing to make the kind of progress we need. And we know the endemic structural racism and the kind of structures and obstacles that make it difficult for people who are poor or live in certain uh, geographic areas are, are, are continuing and persistent. And it's not enough for us to, to just virtue signal that we're interested in this area or that we want to do something about it. We need to align again, back to Abel Smith, the notion of the scholarship paired with political action, paired with policies, paired with, with behaviors and, and, and approaches that need to be tested, it has got to be where we go. So, so I'm, I'm here to say that I really think it's time for grand strategies in healthcare. The question is whether we're, implement, we're willing to implement such grand strategies to address these priority areas. And, and I suggest that we must, 
if we're going to progress. And end game, if the end game are population health metrics, the global measures of life expectancy, years of potential life loss, health status, functional status, psychological health. And we have to put those up as what we're aiming to achieve. A grand strategy is a long-term strategy pursued at the highest levels of government to further society's interests. And the question is, can health, health itself, not a highly functioning healthcare system, but health itself be a societal goal? What, what seems clear to me is that uh, we have much we can do on the healthcare performance side. So like, that's my first priority, right? The first one that can improve outcomes for people that seeking gain. There's, there's, we have vast efficiencies still to gain, safety to achieve, waste to reduce, outcomes to improve. The public is largely behind these efforts. There, there's no misalignment here. They want a system that's more effective, efficient, equitable, patient-centered, timely and safe. They want a better experience. They want a, a, a better outcomes. Our digital systems can be configured to be an ally here. And that's where I think the opportunity is in our healthcare system performance. To date, uh, these systems have largely made healthcare more challenging, more challenging to the workforce who gets burned out by them and, and have not translated into the means by which we can actually elevate care. We're working with the government now on ECQMs, these electronic clinical quality measures. We want to be able to leverage the data for information that can be used in real time, that can be applied for accountability, improvement, and for discovery discovery of how better to do things. And, and I say this coming together, it's sort of the singularity. We've had a lot of measures. I've participated in developing them, but because we've had to use administrative claims, billing data, we've often been in a position where they're not timely. They're not available. They're not helping us. And so we need to be able to have systems that aren't a hindrance to the practitioners, aren't invisible to, to uh, aren't even making things more difficult for the patients, but are in fact, elevating the care, making it easier, and also enabling us to reach people where they live, making it so that the inconvenience in their life to access healthcare, decision-making support is moving away from where it has. And I would suggest moving from the hierarchical system that we've inherited to one that's more of a partnership model, where we recognize the importance of people's agency over their own data and their participation as active partners in all the decisions made about them. I think that we're we can be on the cusp of, of a new era in that. For the, for the race, income, geographic disparities, we need to admit that what we're doing is not working. And the issue goes far beyond the health system issues through to structural racism and other barriers that are mediated only in part by the healthcare system. Now, the healthcare system's not off the hook, but it's part and parcel of, of all of these social determinants. And we say social determinants to are blue in the face but we're not really actively seeking to figure out the leverage points to be able to make the kind of changes. And again, our group is thinking hard about the kind of healthcare equity metrics to which we can become accountable. So that year in, year out, it's not about saying what services do we provide? What new laws do we pass? What policies do we have? It's about whether we've made progress toward the goal. Are people's lives better? Are these disparities being diminished? And not by making any other group worse, but by elevating everyone to the same high level. This investment involves a truly grand strategy, which needs to include patients and, and the public in that dialogue that considers healthcare, but also housing and food and environment and occupations and much more. The solutions need to come from thinking about what structures are promoting the current levels of disparities and the recognition that societal targets must be inclusive 
And we in healthcare can't be just focusing on narrowly being reactive. It has to start earlier. And the the third one though, population health, generally that's the real end game and the challenges are large. The question has relevance today in the US with so many people fighting over seemingly straightforward public health measures. So we've got quite a split. We've got so many people here who, who resist even vaccination in our country. So we've gotta be smart about how we're gonna implement strategies that might seek to improve the public's health. What, what, what healthcare behaviors are people willing to incur to, to get these healthcare gains? Where can we find alignment? Because fighting with people isn't going to be a road towards a, a harmony within society or progress on population health. And I think there are areas where we can get alignment, nudges for healthier behavior, built environments that provoke healthier behaviors and strengthen communities and community cohesion, initiatives that make it easier for people who are interested to be able to address individual risk factors. And then things like higher taxes on smoking products and alcohol, roundabouts for traffic, support for, for homelessness and food insecurity, easier pathways for pregnancy care, expanded senior care. We have to figure out where are those areas where there is no disagreement and for which there would be widespread uh, uh, embrace of these kind of things. Now, we've got lots of other strategies where we have work to do. Guns, climate change, for which there are political divisions in our country. We shouldn't give up on thinking about those areas, but, but they may not be the leading areas that we have in front of us where we can make the most immediate change. Meanwhile, we need to think about how taking things that are difficult into the realm of the possible. We, we are, I think that in all of these, it has to come from also respect for the groups that we're seeking to help. And you know, there's this philosophy within community-based participatory research where we, we are not the researchers on high and, and we're just trying to help all those people out there, but we're working together in, in, a, in a, again, in partnership in ways that help us tap the wisdom that exists in different sectors. So for the patients, how do we give them more agency over their health day, as I said? How do we position them to leverage their data to propel learning, strengthen peer support opportunities, increase competition and care opportunities? Patients need protections and support, but this mega trend towards consumerism is going to, to I think, encompass healthcare, and we've got to be prepared to support it. But it's also going to be part of public health. We're, we're not going to be able to impose behaviors and approaches that we say, hey, you're going to thank us in the end because you're healthier. The opposition to mandates is about people wanting to be able to have their autonomy acknowledged. And we're going to need to work to be able to help nudge people towards healthier behaviors and, and be able to convince people that there may be better approaches and ways of doing things. I think the other thing, uh, like I said, so I'm saying patient empowerment, the state of science and technology angles are going to be important, and I don't have time to get into them deeply, but I will say our group is deeply invested in the ways in which we're going to be able to leverage these data to be put to use to, again, address these issues of healthcare performance, the disparities, and population health. And all of these interventions and tactics are going to need evaluations. I love the JPAL approach at, at MIT where they say, look, we should be randomizing as much as possible. We should be doing these experiments, and we're not. We should be leveraging natural uh, nat natural experiments, and we should be embedding the learning. And just as we're building adaptive trials in, in phase three studies, 
our, our efforts to try to learn how best to effectuate positive change in society should have adaptive designs where we're putting in rapid feedback and then iterating over time, knowing that we're seeking to optimize. And, and that takes a commitment to knowing that we don't know the answers going in, but we need to learn together as we try to improve the lives and experience of people throughout. The, the last coda to this too is that the workforce is burned out. They've, they, we have not spent adequate time trying to think about how do we make it exciting to be part of the healthcare workforce? And so that, and the, I say that a burned out healthcare worker can't provide high quality care. It's impossible. So we need to be able to bring all of this together. So here's my last part. The key in the end is to ask, are we just providing services? Are we aspiring to reach goals for each patient and the entire population? And for those who are delivering the healthcare services that are a level up. And what are those goals? What is our grand strategy to reach them? And how is our system designed? so that we can uh, ensure that we can go through rapid cycle learning as a system. What is our society committed to do? How do we accelerate the production of the knowledge we need and the focus concomitantly with our political structures to ensure their implementation? I think these are questions that Abel Smith asked and will continue to ask of us. The key is to put our scholarship to work for enabling each person to have the best chance at a long, healthy life, and to make the commitment that we know what the healthcare system exists for. And that's not just the provision of services. Thank you. Thank you, Harlan. That was a remarkable talk. Thank you for its breadth and coverage. Um, and I think uh, Brian Abel Smith, Brian would be uh, very happy because you've uh, embedded your passion with uh, delivery and uh, the evidence. So I think he'd be very happy about that. Not surprisingly, we've got a number of questions. We've got a little over just about 10 minutes to answer some of them, so I'll, I'll cherry-pick some of them. There's one from Matthew, a PhD student at the LIC, which I think kind of gets to the heart. He asks, does your argument connect to improvement in health education investments rather than investments in R&D and health coverage expansion. So I'll move on. Oh, I'm actually so glad for this question. Of course, the talk was so wide ranging. There were so many things to get to, but how we're training the future workforce and, and what are the expectations? I mean, is it about, what, what is it that people should have a deep understanding for when they look at the key determinants of, of health? When we look at attributable risk, when we understand what is it that's driving each individual's risk and that risk could be risk of initial event or what their trajectory is likely to be once they've got a diagnosis. I mean, what, what kind of questions are we asking? How are we addressing obstacles in their way? If social determinants are prime factors, then how are they being incorporated into our questions? I've often felt that we need much more investment in the social sciences and our training as a partner for the kind of education that we're doing in the life sciences. And, you know, if we're going to teach biochemistry, then where does it, where are the additional psychology, sociology, anthropology, economics that, that's being put in there in ways that help us understand how best to treat and, and elevate the care of our, of our patients. And, and, you know, we're going to be looking more holistically at, at, at how to help them achieve the best outcomes. We need to be thinking about that. Implementation science, the how, as well as the what to do. You know, we, 
we taught for a long time what to do. Someone comes in with a heart attack, we should give them aspirin and reperfusion therapy, but we didn't talk about how. How do you make sure that happens? And how do we be accountable for that? And, and what kind of systems would ensure that, uh, both as an individual doc and as we think about the system at large? So I'm, I'm all in on that idea that this means medical education from, from the very beginning in the pre-medical all the way through to a continuing education needs to incorporate some of these perspectives. Another question is, um, uh, as you, you said, there's, there's lots of layers, healthcare system, performance, measurement of mortality, etc. But there's a question from uh, Stella who says, basically, does the USA, as a fragmented system, lend itself very well to um, these evaluations and to try to pour the JPAL type of approach out to evaluate social experiments. So the fragmentation might actually help that. So I think we can see, <laughs> so our weakness could be our strength. Is that what you're saying? So look, I, no I, I think that, that there are a lot of uh, natural experiments that are going on in the US all the time. And in some ways, the states themselves lend themselves to that, uh, both with a wide range of policies that they're implementing and simply their, their uh, avidity to, to different approaches. And I mean, we've seen this already. I mean, some of it is just so obvious. I mean, the, the states that were obstructive and, and around vaccination, for example, you know, the, the, they lost maybe 20 to 30% more people to the pandemic than others. I mean, that, that one didn't take much science to figure out, but, but, but it does show that there are I think one of the ways forward in the U.S. is to leverage the states as laboratories of innovation. Uh, we still have political divisions that are standing in our way. I mean, Oklahoma may look to Connecticut, but they don't seek to emulate us. They, they may seek to actually reject an elite northeastern state that they see as not understanding what their lives are like. And we have to bridge these gaps, reach more mutual understanding, and try to figure out what would be acceptable in ways that might be appropriate. Uh, for for their uh, region, but but yeah, no, I agree. I think that there's uh, lots of opportunity in the U.S. to take that weakness and try to create more rapid learning. Probably the last question, actually, it's all we've got time for. Maybe people will email you with follow-ups, but um, yeah, that's very welcome if they want to. The 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 a uh, last question uh, from one of our students is: um, How long would you say the rate of return will be? in the offing, you know, what, what's the time scale you look for for the rate of return on your spend? And, I, you know, that encompasses all this uh, conflict between preventative and curative medicine, obviously, and shifts in behavior. Well, I believe, you know, if we had made a decision in 99 to say, let's set aside $20 what trillion. Like, dollars, what sort of span would you go out, for, out to for your rate and, of return? And see what we could get as a return that we would have been best to create a mixed portfolio uh, uh, in which there were some investments that we would have expected an immediate return on and others that might've taken the 20 years to see the manifestation of. But that again, they were built in adaptive designs so that we could not just say we've got a fixed implementation, but that there's a way to adapt them over time. That we, we have to be prepared to spend some of our investment on, on, uh, on changes that are unlikely to show benefit for an arc of a decade. I mean, I think that that's, that's true, but, but I think we underestimate the kind of ways that many of the changes we can make can produce really rapid improvements. And hypertension is an example. 
there's lots of, of areas, even short-term trials, where if we can get hypertension under better control, within a couple of years, we can see immense benefits. And so, you know, I think it, depending on what we're willing to measure and how we're willing to hold ourselves accountable, I think that there's lots that can be done with even short-term returns. We, we do have to have some where we're saying we're making bets on long-term benefits, but, but I think it's going to take a mixed portfolio to really do it right and get political uh, endorsement. Okay, so um, we're right in time. So thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.